Hello, I'm Michaela Maguire, Artistic Director of the Sydney Writers' Festival. You're listening to a live recording from City Recital Hall at the 2017 Festival. We just shook hands because we're meeting for the first time. There's no, <laughs> nothing backstage. No I didn't know it was you. I, you know. It was very confusing. Uh, my name's Michael Williams. I'm director of the Wheeler Centre and we are in for a treat tonight. It's wonderful to have so many of you here. In his introduction to a new edition of Mark Twain's classic, George wrote the following. Huck and Tom represent two viable mo- models of the American character. They exist side by side in every American and every American action. America is, and always has been, undecided about whether it'll be the United States of Tom or the United States of Huck. The United States of Tom looks at misery and says, hey, I didn't do it. It looks at inequality and says, all my life I've busted my butt to get where I am, so don't come crying to me. Tom likes kings, codified nobility, unquestioned privilege. Huck likes people, fair play, spreading the truck around. Whereas Tom knows, Huck wonders. Whereas Huck hopes, Tom presumes. Whereas Huck cares, Tom denies. These two parts of the American psyche have been at war since the beginning of the nation, and come to think of it, these two parts of the world psyche have been at war since the beginning of the world. And the hope of the nation and of the world is to embrace the Huck part and send the Tom part back up the river where it belongs. When we come together for an event like Sydney Writers' Festival, we do so as an act of listening to stories from afar and stories from right here. And together we try to understand which stories, which voices, which characters make up our national psyche. Tonight's event, this festival, takes place on the land of the Gadigal people. We're gathered on the sovereign country of the Eora Nation. The stories we share, any idea we might form of a national psyche, of who we are as a community, only make sense if we remember those stories, we remember and acknowledge and pay our respects to the owners of this land. Their stories and culture are not erased by either invasion or dispossession. So now, welcome to the United States of George. (laughs) And you don't need me to tell you anything about this man. You're all adoring fans, I can tell, because people lose their shit over George Saunders. <laughs> this is a self-evident fact. Around the Writers' Festival, you see other writers losing their shit. It's one of those things. The phrase of writer's writer, I never really knew what it meant, but what it means is people look to you. They try to understand how to better hone their craft, how to be better at what they do, uh, thanks to your example. Uh, George, obviously best known for his short story collections, uh, 10th of December, Pastoralia, collected essays, The Brain Dead Megaphone and more. He's written his first novel, it was something like a novel, called Lincoln in the Bardo, which we're going to talk about a bit tonight. Um, but I was trying to look through the examples of people losing their shit, and Joshua Ferris said, the reason it's so hard to talk about George is the shared acknowledgement among writers that Saunders is somehow a little more than just a writer. He writes like something of a saint. He seems in touch with some better being. Laurie Moore said, there's really no one like him. Tobias Wolfe said, he's such a generous spirit, you'd be embarrassed to behave in a small way around him. Um, a big New York Times profile for the 10th of December uh, said, I think very movingly, if you didn't know he was more or less universally regarded as a genius, you might peg him as the super friendly host of a woodworking show on daytime public access. <laughs> That's probably less nice. <laughs> but the other thing that they do is they gather a kind of Bardo, a literary bardo of dead writers to try and compare you to. Mark Twain, Flann O'Connor, Nathaniel West, Kurt Vonnegut, Thomas Pynchon, you're the Orwell of the millennium. But what they all end up saying in the end is you are the singular George Saunders. You're a true original. Please, once again, make him very, very welcome. I'm sorry, George, we're out of time. Oh, God, that's perfect. That was my dream event just now. <laughs> that got very awkward at some point. Those comparisons to other writers, what do they mean to you? How much do you feel the weight of influence? Oh, I feel the weight of influence. Those comparisons are nice, and I, but I think, uh, you know, if you have low self-esteem, it's a very good friend. So I, I kind of know, you know, what my gifts are, and they're pretty narrow, and I just kind of keep trying to work them. But it's, it's an honor to be included in that lineage and you just try to live up to it, basically. You know. 
To what extent do your habits as a reader inform the way you approach the task of being a writer? Very much. I, I came from a working class part of Chicago and I was kind of a crazy reader. I read a lot of books about baseball and World War II and cereal boxes and all that. And then, um, uh, so I think I was kind of an, an erratic reader, not very well guided reader. But I had a, when I was in third grade, this nun gave me a book called Johnny Tremaine uh, by Esther Forbes. And first, the, the act of a nun giving, when you're a Catholic kid in Chicago, that's like the Pope giving you a book or a movie star or something. So that was big. And she also did this kind of thing where she said, um, I'm, you know, she held it like this. She said, uh, we were discussing you in the convent. It's like, <laughs> really? <laughs> and, uh, and then she said, some of the sisters don't think you're ready for this book. Oh, bring it on, you know, so, but, but that was, um, it was a, it's a beautifully uh, stylized book, and that was, looking back, it, it's interesting, I was in third grade, so I'm going to be nine or ten, and the style of the book really got me. I, I, I was struck by the uh, economy of it, and some of the sentences where a, a, a needed comma was omitted and stuff like that, and then I noticed this thing, which I know almost every writer has experienced, where the, the that language goes in your head, and for the next few days, you're thinking in that language, you know, the, the, you know, the nun came out of the church, <laughs> sky was low, you know, that kind of silly, but, but it was very magical, that, and so that was the first thing, and then I kind of, you know, went back to being an errant reader until many years later, Hemingway came along, and so it's style, I think, is what I, I read I read this, and it fascinated me that Hemingway was a big, early kind of role model, because I don't see a lot of Hemingway in your work now. What, hap what happened? When did you take him on and when did you decide to yeah. let him go? Well, I, I think when col in college I read him and I think probably I was reading more for the romance and the kind of world travel. But the style also, same, very similar from Esther Forbes to Hemingway, that there's that sense that you can um, meaningfully omit, you know, you can pare back and, and that way you can, you can mean more efficiently. Um, so I think it was mostly the, the economy or really it was the, when I read Hemingway's sentences, they only could have come from him, I, I felt. Uh, and when I would go from Hemingway or from Esther Forbes or later Isaac Bobble or Henry Green to other writers, I always felt like, ugh, those sentences are, the other sentences are generic. Anyone could do that. So as a young writer, the struggle was, can I figure out a way to make my sentences sound like my sentences and not just from that sort of middle ground of, of every sentences? That, that was the obsession. So it would go from, you know, Hemingway, and then when Kerouac came along, that was also, I felt that was in the same same family, basically. It was, the sound was really important to me. So that question of finding your own voice, is that a fixed process? Is that something you did at one point, or is that an ongoing thing for you? No, it's ongoing, I think. And, you know, for me, part of the thing is to say, uh, it's almost like an algebra. I think if you get very obsessive about voice, you start excluding portions of reality. In other words, I read a great essay by Hunter S. Thompson about Hemingway, and the idea was that as Hemingway got older, and his style became kind of a trap for him. There were aspects of contemporary America he just couldn't describe in that kind of language. You know, he couldn't go to a, a kind of late 50s shopping mall or something and get that same prose quality. So in a sense, his stylistic uh, uh, distinctiveness meant that parts of the world for him were atrophying and dying off. So I think it's, it's kind of a, what I try to keep alive is a sense that I'm in control of every phrase. I, I might elect to you know, let a certain kind of language be a little bit looser, but that's it. But the choice never leaves you. It's always your choice to do that. That, I think, is, is ongoing, you know. I don't want to jump around too much, but it, it seems like folly when talking about voice and language not to jump quickly to Lincoln in the Bardo, which is this polyvocal masterpiece. Is, is that a kind of manifestation of the way you find voices? As a bird, find a whole lot of different voices and then honor a contract with him? Yeah, this was a little different. You know, in everything else I've written uh, with voice, uh, I, would some, I have stories where there's two distinct voices, sometimes even three, you can kind of push it. And uh, the game there is to make the voices sound really different from one another. So that's, that's fun. Uh, and for me, that goes back to sort of George Carlin and Richard Pryor and Monty Python, that whole idea of voices being slightly exaggerated, you know, um, almost like accents. But with this Lincoln book, when I started to realize there were gonna be so many ghosts, uh, I actually thought a little bit about Tolstoy, who, what he does in something like War and Peace is he makes hundreds of people, I guess, by not using voice very much. 
you know, he, uh, I don't think you can do 180 separate voices. I certainly can't. I can do like three. I, you know, a working class guy and a duck and, you know, and a, 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 a southern guy who sounds a little bit like a working class duck. But, um, but, but when you start thinking about 166, then you're in the realm of, I think, gamesmanship a little bit. You want to make, I want you to believe that this person is different from this person. Uh, I found you can do a lot with typography even. Uh, Tolstoy does a lot just with habits. A certain person is always thinking, uh, let's say, he's always th worried about being late. You can make an entire human being out of that tendency if you're skillful. So with Lincoln, a lot, for me, a lot of that was to say, you've kind of made your, uh, your place with voice, now surrender that just a little bit. You know, it's gonna look like voice, but actually those aren't very distinctive voices. So, so at this point in the game to say, God, you know, I've, I've still got to write for another 30 or 40 years, God willing, uh, can I find a new area to investigate? Maybe uh, surrendering voice as your thing is part of the way you extend your, your, uh, your run. Yeah. I'm interested in that answer before you even got to Tolstoy, you got to Carlin and Python and your earliest impulses, if I've got it right, before even knowing you wanted to be a writer, were performance-based. Yes, yeah. And in our neighborhood, that was, we weren't really, it was kind of a working class neighborhood and uh, there was reading, but it wasn't a, a big thing. It wasn't, you know, so mostly it was a, a television. Uh, in the neighborhood itself, you could get a lot of, uh, well, if you weren't an athlete or particularly good looking, then you, you could get some credibility with comedy, you know, with kind of doing voices and imitating people and so on. So that was, and like I- Like you were an athlete. Um. Not, I, I was, yeah, but not, not a good one. Um, but I, I heard Juno Diaz one time say that he thought that writers came out of environments where, where early on you got the message that language was power. So in his case, it was that he was, the, he was not the oldest son, but he was the most, he's the quickest with language. So he was sent to the store to speak English. And in our family, you could really get a lot, on both sides, you could get a lot of credibility if you were uh, a talker. You could, if you could hold the floor, you were allowed to sit with the grown-ups. And that often had to do with humor uh, or, or you know, kind of taking an unusual uh, slant. Or also in the 60s, there was, um, if you could talk politics, you could stay with the, with the adults. So I think that's where the, uh, and my dad was quite a performer. He would come in and kind of hold the room. So I think that was the first thing, yeah. But wit and play and humour were there when you then turned your mind to writing. It was, well, the comedic no, was important? Unfortunately not, because I, as a working class person, I thought, now I'm going to be a writer. Put all that shit behind me. Humour, no, no, no. That's for the low people, you know. <laughs> and, and literature is that thing that I just actually can't do yet. You know, you stand on your toes and you can just touch literature Wednesday and then you come back down. So for that whole Hemingway phase, part of it was just thinking whatever, of course, whatever I can do naturally, that's not literature. You know, what, it's only when I stretch or the muse lands on me or something. Or, you know, and for, there was a time where I thought, when I was reading, I think the good book is the one that I can't figure out what the hell's going on, you know? <laughs> How many people are talking? I don't know, this is an incredible book, you know? The, yeah. so, so for me, the, the, big, the big thing was, was the real, like, as you're implying, the, 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 the place where my natural urge to entertain crossed literature and you realize that the whole thing is a process of getting one reader on the line and trying to entertain her or somehow compel her to keep reading. And lo and behold, to do that, you probably would have to invoke some of the gifts that you use every day to do those kind of things. Yeah. It, I find it really interesting, many of the writers at this festival, many writers you talk to, some have a very deliberate, conscious approach to how they do what they do and others claim to let the muse take them. You're very much in the former category. Like you're very thoughtful about each of the elements that go into a good piece of writing. I think I'm thoughtful after the fact. In, in, in the actual thing, it's very, very intuitive to the point where I really have nothing to say about it, or I've developed something to say about it. Uh, but in the moment, it's quite, um, you know, it, it's literally just, uh, I mean, if there's any one skill that I've learned over the years, it's to take a piece of writing I've been working on and kind of, there's just a quick adjustment of your mind, which is to say, you don't know. Start reading and just see how your own reading mind reacts to it, and then edit accordingly at speed. That, and and the, so the only thing that I think I've learned is that, that state of mind uh, of slight openness, where you're trying to imitate a first-time reader, basically, that's it, really. And then what I found is if I can try to go into that mind over and over again, many days, months, years, 
uh, with small edits, the thing actually starts to take shape and then it, it leads you. But so I, like, I love to talk about that after the fact, you know, and I think I'm usually fairly accurate. And in, in, in teaching, you, you sort of have to do that. But uh, in truth, you know, they're, they're, in a way, the difference between a decent writer and a not so decent writer, I would say, is what happens in that split second when you've regarded your own sentence and then self-assessed your own energy in relation to it, which is totally not, it's not, I don't think it's intellectual. I think it's visceral and it's probably, you know, sublingual. It's just like, uh, you know, I, I do it at Syracuse, I do this exercise with a new class and I'll just write four or five adjectives on the board. And then I'll say, uh, okay, put them in order. And not once has anyone ever said, on what basis? You know, they just sit down and go, oh, I never screw, you know. And then we talk about it. And of course, nobody puts them in the same order. Uh, but, but I think that, that instant, there's something in that, you know, that you, you're, if you're a language person, uh, you have really strong opinions that are not uh, intellectual overtly. They're, they're, you, you can dress them up afterwards, but in the moment, they're quite, they're quite visceral. So to be able to trust that as a, as a, uh, a valid part of one's artistic journey, I think, is a pretty big step. If that's the way, I mean, there are other people who have much more rational approaches, but that's mine. Uh, it makes a lot of sense. Do you, so when are you wrong? When you're wrong? When are you wrong? What have been the moments where you've had that instinct and then 20 pages later? Oh, it, it happens every day. So that's why you come back the next day, you know? And, and, I, and I think the idea is that over many months of that, there's a, you kind of reach a steady state, you know, where you'll have something in the book, out of the book, in the book, out of the book. And then, uh, it, I mean, again, I can't explain it, but if you do it enough, it, it, you know. You, it, you know, there's something that, sometimes this is the, one model I love for, for a work of fiction is that it exists perfectly in your mind before you start. Not, your, not this mind, but the bigger mind. Then you go to tell it and you drop it and it shatters all over the floor. Like, oh shit, now I have to rewrite. So you start and as you do, you're, in a sense, you're kind of reassembling this crossword puzzle. And the reason I, I believe this is a useful model is that I've had this happen so many times. Um, you know, November of 2013, I cut a chunk out and put it in a different file. And, oh, too bad, leave it alone. One year passes, two years pass, the story's getting tighter and tighter and it's becoming this beautiful rhetorical argument and it makes sense. And I get to page 18 two years later and go, I really need something about Mona's sitting posture. I go, oh yeah. Go back to that file and the, that paragraph drops exactly into that place. I mean exactly, and, and in doing it, it even makes levels of meaning I didn't expect, you know. So I, I think, you know, it sounds a little bit new age, but I think the... Um, you know, maybe thinking about writing, the only thing you can ever do is make a model that helps you do it better. And for me, the model that I stumbled on way back when is don't overthink it. Uh, don't think that your planning is actually necessarily beneficial, but trust your, this intuitive thing we're talking about, trust it. If you apply that with faith over and over and over again, the project is actually a lot smarter than you are, and it'll get to where, where it goes, you know. So the kind of themes and threads that we can say running through your work, is that, again, something you become aware of afterwards? You don't set out to say, I've got this Syrian indictment of capitalism and I'm going to fit it into this <laughs> no, story. No, because I love capitalism. That. I think capitalism is great. No, yeah, absolutely right. George is signing books at the bookstore afterwards. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we have to buy four each. That's one of the... One of the... No, you know, it, it's exactly right. Although, so yes, uh, you become aware of your interests, your issues by this process of revising. And what happened to me, for example, is... Somebody pointed this out a few years ago. Every story is a savior narrative, just about. There's always somebody saving somebody else. Didn't even notice it. But So I guess in this model, if you're revising to taste iteratively like this, you are going to tend maybe neurologically to tell the same stories. But there is maybe one additional twist, which is uh, sometimes you can become aware halfway through a story where it's going. Of course, that's fine. Uh, then I think you, you just continue to use this process and you just say, maybe the story will change its mind. You know, you, tr you, tr you allow it to destabilize. Or, you know, I had a story um, called Escape from Spiderhead a few years ago. Got through it for me pretty quickly, like four months, and I was just about at the end and I thought, oh, damn it, another savior story, you know. I can't do that again. Uh, and so I took a uh, detour and I wrote a, another year of alternate scenes and trying different stuff and it didn't work. And I picked up one... I don't remember what it was, but one additional thing 
that I then brought back to the original story and finished it. And it was only, it was actually shorter than it was the year before. So, so I think all these things, it's kind of negotiable, but the basic idea is just intuition uh, and, and this iterative quality and then a kind of faith that uh, that process actually has a lot of magic in it. That must make it hard as you become more aware of your audience, more aware of your readers, that openness and that not predetermining anything. I, I've heard you talk about 10th of December got an enormous response on awards, uh, extremely well received. And I've, I've heard you talk about the fact that it was a collection that you knowingly were aware was a bit of a departure for you, or was pushing you into a new register. Yeah. How do you approach that while staying open, or was that something that came clear a bit later? I, I think, you, well, one thing is you become clear by listening to people. And so I noticed that uh, up, up until that book, and, and while I was writing the stories, there were groups of people that I liked very much who didn't really like my stories, like my family, some of my family. You know, I, I mean, they, you go to a family party, and they're very sweet, and they're very proud of success, but they'd say, oh, I got your book. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. And, and then what happened was, now when you're younger, you think, yeah, that's because I'm so radical, you know. <laughs> and then as you get older, you think maybe it's, you know, maybe there's, I have a tick that is... Uh, somehow uh, pushing away people who could read the book. In other words, when you, you try to get energy into your work, sometimes you develop certain habits when you're young, and that fits the moment. But as you get older, uh, you might want to try to expand outwards. So that was something that was sort of ongoing, maybe, for, I mean, probably the last 10 years, just the thought that there were certain positive valences in my life that I wasn't skillful enough to get into the stories. So, you know, my wife and I have been married 30 years. We have two beautiful daughters. We've had a wonderful life, and uh, somehow you think, well, where is that? You know, where, where is the sense that, that although life is, I think, crushingly difficult and full of suffering and certainly not in our control and all that stuff, which is true and very important to keep in mind, it's also true that things can flicker on in a beautiful way. You can, you can surprise yourself and do something lovely. Somebody can intervene and help you. Uh, I felt that the reason that wasn't in my work was because of technical deficiency on my part. So I think what you do in that moment is you just sort of go, yeah, true. And then this whatever subconscious that I'm talking, it, it notices you noticing that and it urges you, you know. So I, I had a story, um, let's see, called Victory Lap in 10th of December. And uh, I, I was aware that I have a lot of violence in my stories and I don't particularly, I don't mind it, but I, I have seen it sometimes as a bit of a crutch. You just, you know. So I thought I'm going to write a story that's completely not violent and I modeled it on a Chekhov story where this young girl goes to the opera and comes back and just thinks about boys, basically, very sweetly. Did that story was so boring, you know? <laughs> so, I, so I put in a kidnapper, of course, you know? <laughs> but, but, but even then, I was thinking, okay, so, all right, I, I'll make that one concession to my, you know? But then you're, you're looking for a way, not looking consciously, but you're, you're tired of not having positive valence in the story when the positive valence is in life. That, that's sufficient. That tiredness, the weariness with what you usually do is sometimes enough to swerve you over into something better. So in that story, it meant that I just kept my eye on it. Is there any way that this girl can be saved? You know, Willing to say, oh, no, actually in this story, not, but also willing to say, yeah, it's possible. So it's, it's all very kind of... Uh, I suppose it's like personality. You know, If you were aware that you, <laughs> you kept ending friendships by sudden bursts of rudeness, you know... You could make a resolution not to do it, uh, but if you, the resolution was in your body, you would find opportunities to maybe not do it as much, you know? Or, uh, is, that I, sense? is that right? I don't know. I, I love the idea of you just being uncontrollably suddenly rude. To yeah. Me. I think that makes a lot of sense. I, I read this line from you in an interview, lovely interview you did with Zadie Smith, where... Uh, you said, I've had it my whole career. People were always hedging around the question of why are you so dark? What happened to you? Yeah. And that made me laugh, because I don't think of you... I, there's darkness in your stories, but there's such a pervasive, prevailing sense of optimism and belief in goodness. Uh, do you feel dark? Uh, Have I misread you? No, not, I don't feel dark, but I feel... Um, uh, well, actually, the truth is... The, um, the stories tell me that I am. And, and you know, this, I, one of my mantra bits is Flannery O'Connor said, a writer can choose what he writes, but he can't choose what he makes live. So that means if I think I'm a cheerful advocate of kindness and I write a story in which a puppy saves a goldfish and everybody goes to sleep and hates me, 
that's the wrong story, you know? So, so I think that's, you know, one of the things you learn in your kind of apprenticeship phase is what can I do on the page that actually engages people? And even if it troubles them in some way, uh, then that's pretty, uh, you know, you know, you, if you, because uh, those Hemingway stories didn't trouble anybody or even interest anybody. They just were, uh, they were phoned in in a certain way. So you know that that's not your, your mode. And somehow when I um, stumble on a mode in which a character is put in a lot of peril and I kind of gratuitously cause harshness in her life or his life, the stories came alive comically and they came alive, uh, just even in terms of plot. I mean, it, the, the plot of that, my first book, they're all the same, you know? Shitty day gets worse, that, you know? Uh, <laughs> That's pretty much life. <laughs> but I trace that back even, you know, when I was a kid, that, that Johnny Tremaine book I mentioned, it's the whole story is a guy with a lot of great prospects. <laughs> this sounds so uplifting. He burns his hand in a, uh, molten silver and his life is ruined. Good so, stuff, you know. <laughs> so not for the first time, you were ruined by nuns. Yeah. yeah no. Ruined and propped up at the same time. And, uh, and so you abandoned Catholicism for Buddhism. I, yeah, they're or the, them. I, think they're the, I think they're the same, actually, but, you know. I, I, wow. <laughs> Strap in, Colson Whitehead's not coming here after this. We're talking about how Buddhism and Catholicism are the same for the next four hours. Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting to me, though. Is, is faith important to you, and is it something that you, to make sense of it, you need to carve out your own version of it? I think, I think, you know, the uh, Catholic Church in Chicago in the 60s was really something odd. And, you know, it had everything. It had big iconography, molestation, the whole, the whole gamut, you know. Um, but I, I found it, our particular section was lovely. You know, these nuns who were really serious educators. And uh, there was a little bit of that kind of radical Dorothy Day, Thomas Merton sensibility. So I, I just loved it. And I was a reader, read the epistle every day or every Saturday anyway. Uh, so I had that first experience of going up in front of an audience and reading beautiful language. So I, I think what happened was that a little bit of uh, art space got opened up in my mind because it's such a beautiful symbolic language, you know. Uh, and I, I, I don't know, it just was always interesting to me. From the time I was a little kid, uh, death was really... Uh, interesting to me, and uh, also the possibility that a person could um, transform. I had a, a thing that really was in church once on a Saturday night with my family, and we used to go to church, and then after that we'd go to these uh, family's house, and we'd play, my parents would play cards and drink, and we would watch movies. So I'm in the church, and I just had this really powerful sensation that... Uh, that, the, that Catholicism was real. In other words, that all these saints we'd been hearing about were actually actual human beings, and they were all dedicated to the idea that it was possible for one person to empathize with and kind of almost occupy the mindset of another person and, and then be filled with love, and that would be the most powerful state of mind you could ever be in. I actually, I mean, I was sitting in church going, oh, wow, I get it, you know? Uh, I want in on that, that lineage. But at the same time, I was thinking, I know this is going to fade. We're going to go play cards. You know, and uh, oh, I don't want to go. I, and I, I said, I want to ask my mom and dad if I can just stay in church for tonight so I can really nail this thing down, you know. And I knew that was weird. So, so I went to the thing, and sure enough, about 8 o'clock, I'm like, it's fading. And by 9 o'clock, I was just my usual self again. But, but those kind of experiences were really powerful. And it's kind of weird. I mean, it's odd to talk about them, but, but they were real. And I think that carried right over into writing. When, when I kind of did that, you know, teenage abandonment of religion, that's when Hemingway came in, and, and, uh, and it's always felt kind of sacramental and, and you know, self-improving in some way. And so death is a kind of crucial motif, more even than the cruelty or the, the other stuff. Death itself, I read a quote from you that said, if death's in the room, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, so that brings us, obviously, to Lincoln and the Bardo. And the Bardo itself, where you've decided to take a tradition that is narratively useful for you, but make it your own. The rules are the ones that suit the story, not that suit someone else's idea. Yeah, yeah. I, I had the idea at the beginning that I would, get, I would get Lincoln just right and the Civil War just right, and I'd be faithful to the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and I even went out to the graveyard and made a nice map, and then about a month in, you're like, yeah, that's a boring novel. If the, you know, that, that's not what it's about. So, it, yeah, so it was just kind of a, you know, how, how can we make this book sort of interesting and, you know, edgy? So... 
The measure of boring is whether you're enjoying writing it? Is that the best, no. coming back to that instinct level? No, because I have enjoyed a lot of writing a lot of boring things. You know, I think that, that's a little bit like, you know, there's a lot of other things that that's like, where you, it's fun for you, but it might not be fun for anybody else. Um, no, it's not, it's, it's more, um, I think you, I, I, I like to have fun when I'm working, and there's a feeling of fullness and kind of, uh, uh, capaciousness or like a lot of stuff behind you as you're working, that's fun. But then for me, the test is when I'm rereading it in this imitation of first reader mind, is it fun then? And fun, fun means, um, yeah, it, it just means, uh, yeah, I don't know. You know it's like you, it's that definition of porn, you know it when you see it, you know? But, I mean, I, I have this cheesy thing where I say it's like having a meter in your head and this is positive and this is negative and when, when the meter is in the positive range you're doing good and when it falls into the negative you need to revise Some, something approximately like that yeah yeah the um there's a great review of marilyn robinson's gilead that said it was a novel that taught you how to read it as you read it and i thought about that when i was reading lincoln because this question of the rules of the world that you created um the nature of the many voices the nature of how the afterlife works, what happens there. Um, did, you, did you map those rules out and then find yourself hamstrung by them? Or were they, were they liberating? Did they guide you through where the story had Well, they were discovered at speed, basically. You know? And it's really, you, you do, um, okay, so for example, there was a moment where, uh, so Lincoln is in the crypt with, his, with his, the body of his son, and also the spirit of his son is kind of buzzing around anxiously. And there was just a moment where uh, I had to, just, you know, making sentences, basically, I had the son lean into the father. Well, then I think, in a sense, you're just doing realism, which is if, if a spirit leans against a physical body, what happens? And the convention is, it goes in. It, you know, there's no solidity. All right, so we do that. Well, then you made another opportunity, which is what happens to the respective mind states when that it's gone in there. So in a sense, it's almost like realism. You know, if you have a, you know, if you have a glass of water on the table in a realist story sitting on the edge, an alert writer knows that it could go over. It doesn't have to, but, the, but part of uh, fictive wit is to remember what you've done. So when you have the, 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 the sun dropping into Lincoln, you have an opportunity to decide if that has an effect on the respective mental states. All right, at that moment you say, like the optometrist, the office, is this better or this better? It's, I thought it was better if it did have an effect on the mental state. So suddenly, uh, the kid, in just playing around, the kid starts ventriloquizing his own living father. So that was fun, and I liked it, you know, looking at it, yeah, that's kind of cool. Well, then that's a rule. You just made a rule. And the rule is anytime a ghost passes through a living person, they ventriloquize. So, so that's the way that you, I think in science fiction, the same way. It's not, it's, for me, it's never the case that you make a set of rules and then demonstrate them, but you try to, but by guiding towards the most lively prose, you make a set of rules. And, and again, fictive wit is, oh shoot, I remember I made a rule about this, so I have to honor it. And there's a, the, the reader likes that, actually. She might have forgotten about the rule. And when you come back and remind her, it's, very, it's a nice moment of bonding. Yeah. Do you not only have to honor it, but does it open... Yeah. <laughs> Fictive wit's all well and good, but there were some people at the back of the theatre just going, oh, please move it back in. What is wrong with you? Um, uh, so you don't just have to honor those rules, though, presumably. They open up all kinds of possibilities. I mean, that, that example then becomes kind of crucial for various key dramatic and comic moments in the yes. book after that. Yes. I mean, I think, I think the thing that I love about uh, work of fiction is it's not, I mean, it is, of course, we feel it to be about the world, but actually it's a, it's a, it's a dynamic system responding to itself. That, that, to me, anyway, that's the, when you have a novel, uh, the first page makes a certain energy. You, the reader, know it, I, the writer, know it, and we lean in, we say, okay, that's the game. Then, uh, I think the way that a novel winds up being about your life and about the deepest things that you know and feel is in the way the dynamic system responds to itself. Uh, when I start thinking, like, you know, this has been such a beautiful week for my wife and I in Sydney, and I think, oh, I should write a novel based in Sydney, you know. <laughs> I'll take some notes, and th I know that's wrong for me, you know, because then I'm, I'm doing something else than writing a work of fiction. The work of fiction for me, again, just my approach, is to take some small moment get it so it's alive, and then let that moment produce the next. So that the system, the, the fictive system is a whole that 
you know, that, that responds to itself. So in this book, you know, that moment where the, the son goes into the father, okay, so that's a rule. Later, there's two adult ghosts who are inside of Lincoln, and they're taking turns ventriloquizing him, and that's pretty cool. And then I needed him to walk off, and he walked off. And then I had about a week where I, I was stuck. There was something weird about that, and I couldn't figure it out. And then I thought, oh, I haven't done that job of saying what happens when a ghost is inside a ghost. And that was, and, and it made, you know, this meter idea, every time I read it, the meter dropped into the negative just because something was sucky about the prose at that point. And, same exact statement, I was neglecting uh, an opportunity, basically. Then, then the, the thrilling thing is to say, okay, today, Wednesday, I have to actually turn to that moment and look at it. And you know it'll make something beautiful. It, and this is one of the other mysteries. If you, with my students, I always say there's this... Uh, problem called the avoidance moment. And it's always, it, it's always, the symptom is always a drop in the energy of the reading. And the reason is always because the writer doesn't know what's supposed to happen yet. So she puts up a to be determined sign. And it's so sweet actually when you see it because it's always something like suddenly we go 400 years back in time, you know, <laughs> or, or some spaceships come down, you know, or often if, if a writer jumbles chronology, that's the same kind of thing. So that was a moment where I was just avoiding that. And as soon as I turned to it, oh, okay, two ghosts together. What are the options? And there were actually a few different options and you just sort of choose the best one. So what's the relationship? Because you mentioned that suddenly the prose might get sucky if you're overthinking. Uh, that process. What's the relationship between those kind of narrative and conceptual rules you set yourself and the kind of technical and linguistic ones? You know, when, so a book like Lincoln, how much do you strive for a certain level of historical uh, accuracy? How important is it to you to kind of get the language exactly so to make the historical record sit as close to your own writing as possible? It's actually, you know, I found out it's not important to me at all, actually. Well, you know, it's, it, well, it's important to me in the same way that when the magician is sawing the assistant in half, you believe it. That's really it. So, so in a sense, in the States we have this commercial, used to have it, where this guy says, I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. <laughs> so, this is not a 19th century novel, but, but you're going to hopefully agree with me that it kind of looks like one. You know, that, that's about as far as I, I care so about it. So you didn't find yourself anxiously wondering whether a phrase was uh, kind of... I found myself wondering if the reader would suddenly throw up a penalty flag. So, so then there were a bunch of phrases I made up, and the only test was would an intelligent reader allow, allow this, to, you know... Um, not tr I'm not trying to trick the person, but I'm trying to make the game nice, you know, we, we could, I, um, in fact, I think I even, you can even get a little bit of credit if, if you know that I'm making something up, but I did it pretty well, then we go, okay, we're still, we're still playing together, you know. But, do you, to write a book like that, do you have to trick yourself as well? Are there ways in which you know your own bad habits and you have to absolutely. game yourself to avoid them? Yeah, I mean, I think that this, I have this phrase with my students called self-gaming, and, and it, it proceeds even off the page into life. I mean, if you're somebody who knows you have to have a four-hour block of writing, get it, you know. Or if you, if you know that, uh, you know, a lot of people, uh, uh, it's funny, people who, are, who end up being in our program, we get about 650 applications a year for six spots. And they're amazing students, and it's fully funded, so it's a wonderland, you know. But one of the things that, that the type of person who's really competent like that does is they, uh, some of them, will tend to find ways to screw themselves up. You know, to say, I want to be really successful and beloved and make a ton of money. They won't say that, generally, you know, so I have to teach them to say that. But, but you know, the, the, this self-gaming, I think it's really important to say, um, you know, everybody is not only artistically, but in terms of personality, you're a unique, weird assortment of things. The, the, the idea is not to smooth that out and make yourself perfect in, in art. I think the idea is to say, in what ways am I imperfect? Can I, can I visualize my various imperfections as just energies? You know? So um, I'm somebody who needs approval. I love attention. I've always had since I was a little obnoxious kid. So at one point I thought, that's terrible. What a jerk. You know? Tone it down. <laughs> But then at some point you say, okay, I accept that about myself. Now go forth and get it in a clean way, you know. <laughs> you know? Or, or you're somebody who just for some reason loves writing long descriptions of flowers. That's terrible. You know, you could never be a writer. 
unless you make the most amazing book about only flowers, you know. So, so I think that's one of the things at Syracuse. We try to, um, you know, at that level, they're already wonderful writers, and the job is to get them to do the thing that only they can do, and that has to do with saying, this thing that I maybe have always thought of as a defect in myself is actually just an energy. So if I can get that thing to present in a, a positive way, then it's not a defect anymore. Yeah. So is it that energy, I mean, I cannot think of another writer who could write something that I would describe as a deeply moving meditation on grief and loss that also has a very well-sustained erection gag for yeah. most of its duration. <laughs> erection gag's a bad phrase. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if you Let's want to Let's say joke. Erection joke is better. I regret that. <laughs> How important is that for you when you're dealing with these emotional things, and you touched on that a bit before in your process going into 10th of December, you know you want to hit these emotional notes, right? You know um, that uh, if it works, there won't be a dry eye in the house. Do you need the counterweight to make it I, I do, I do. I mean, because my particular, I mean, for example, I uh, have a tendency to be very uh, maudlin, sentimental. My, you know, early, I mean, I after the Hemingway period or kind of during, there was a lot of uh, Khalil Gibran, uh, Anne Rand, was it, I loved her, I thought she was a great novelist and had just the right idea about human beings, you know, or just, <laughs> everyone who suffers is weak, you know, that's, a, uh, but I, but, but, so I had, a, I have a very, um, so I think of it as a working class sentimental quality. Uh, well, that's one of the defects, and so I have that, so I'm trying to, I try to improve it, but but there are times where I get really earnest in early drafts, and the note to self is, be funny for a couple minutes. Just, just to keep the train going, you know, to, to alternate between the two things. No, I, uh, I get that. I'm curious, do you think your love of kind of fantastical elements and absurdity and uh, occasionally even postmodern flourishes is about keeping sentimentality at bay? Yes. Is it about having an artifice? Yes. It's, it's really, I mean, I, it's almost like um, I, I keep this analysis or this analogy of being on a date with somebody or in a conversation. If you uh, get on your pol political screed and you're hectoring, hectoring, and you see the person start to nod off, you have to do something else. So the, the beautiful thing I think about being a writer is you find out you don't have that many things to do. You have maybe three. You know, I have like maybe three modes. Uh, when I was a kid, there was this thing called, uh, these cars called Hot Wheels, so those, you have them, okay. So there was this, I got this present, and it was uh, three plastic gas stations that had these rubber rotating wheels inside them. So the game was, you'd put those around the house, run the tracks around, and these wheels would spin. So when the car went in, it would spit the car out, and it would go to the next gas station. Just about the time it stopped, it would hit that gas station and go around. So if you were clever, you could do this for, you could leave for school in the morning, and it was still happening at night. <laughs> so this, to me, is a perfect analogy for a story. You know, you, you start off on one, with one riff. It's interesting. It starts to wear out. You have to bring in the other thing. So for me, the idea, you know, the idea that you, uh, if you have, if I'm, if I'm pretty darkly funny and kind of sickeningly sentimental, do I have to quit writing? No, I just have to use those sort of in tag team a little bit. And the postmodern element's the same, same thing. In a couple of minutes, you'll get a chance to ask some questions of George. I mention it now so that you can uh, do your best to turn them into really short questions uh, that are actually questions uh, that give us no details about your personal life. So <laughs> I mentioned that. I'll come to it in a couple of minutes. Um, Lincoln, how do you approach a historical figure like that without being overwhelmed by the weight of it? Because Amongst the many things this novel does, it is a love letter to your country. And doing that with such a kind of notable historical figure must place all kinds of pressures on you. Yeah, I put it off for 20 years just because I did not want to do Lincoln. You know, four score and seven years ago, I did walk into this graveyard. You know, that you just don't. So I, I think one thing you do is you sort of say to yourself, what a drag that I have to write about Lincoln. You know, I, oh no. Uh, and then what, essentially what you do is you, you, you tell yourself all the reasons it's going to be difficult, and then you try to avoid those, you know. So, uh, you know, Lincoln is kind of a plaster saint. 
Okay, I'm going to remember that. Uh, Lincoln is now perfect. No, he's never made a mistake. I'm going to remember that. Uh, so, so in other words, when you go to go to, it's almost like if you had to go to a lunch and break bad news, you'd know what the problems were going to be, and you'd sort of brace yourself for that. So that that's one thing. The other thing is just sort of stage management. Like for Lincoln, I thought he's got to be in the book as short a time as I can manage. You know, get him in, get him out quickly. Uh, so I, and I guess what I'm trying to say is you, I think your best friend as a writer is to know all of the, the, uh, the potential problems with, with something that you're going to do. And then, again, just front load those and, you know, note to self, don't suck. You know, try, don't do, I mean, it sounds a little silly, but, but if you know the problems, then you can kind of say, okay, this will be, it's a form of constraint, essentially. I mean, Particularly at this historical moment, though, that, that thing where you're writing about ideas of national psyche, where you're writing about um, identity, you're writing about Americanness, uh, there must you must have readers who are trying to impose their own framework on the book in that context. Yeah, especially because of the timing. Because I finished it, and then right around that time, Trump declared for the presidency. So oh, it, Trump is he yeah. one of your politicians? No, it turned out fine. It turned out fine. We haven't heard uh, of that over. <laughs> But no, so there was, the book was done, and then that, you know, that all happened. Uh, and it, actually, in my mind, w what I was thinking about was more of the Black Lives Matter movement and the fact that we, you know, that has never been, uh, race has never been uh, fixed in our country or, or even addressed. Uh, it seems strange you know, to be almost 60 and go, wow, this has been going on exactly the same way since I was a little kid. That, that was on my mind. Uh, and, then, and then you sort of said that Lincoln actually had it right. Uh, he, he really did. The last year of his life, he was making so much progress, almost like a, a bodhisattva, some kind of spiritual being. Then he was killed, which I, I think is like the great national American tragedy because of what we might have been if he had lived. So I was thinking about that, and then you know, next thing you know, it's, uh, it's, it came out uh, just after the inauguration. So it, it definitely added, an, on the tour, it added another element of, of uh, you know, kind of agitation. But I think, yeah, as a way of... Uh, you know, you look at a country like ours, and, and I really love it. I, I mean, I almost have never been anywhere else, and I adore it. But at this stage of life, to go, wow, I always thought it was a car that occasionally went into the ditch. Well, maybe it was a car that was in the ditch and occasionally came up onto the road, you know. Uh, it's kind of a sobering thought. You're lucky you've come to the right country. We've solved racism here. So. <laughs> <laughs> We're very evolved. It's a chance for you to ask questions of George now uh, before we start getting into the nature of post-racial society. And there is someone at microphone too, very fast, even before the house lights come up. That is, <laughs> that's impressive. I'm dying to know this. You once wrote that you had a teacher named Doug Unger, I think his name was, who gave you the single best advice about writing dialogue that you'd ever heard, um, but you didn't say what it was. And I'm, it's I'm because it's top secret. Yeah. <laughs> but I really love Australia, so... I, no, I, this was, uh, yeah, there was, we had a teacher named Doug, Douglas Unger, who's a wonderful writer. And, you know, it's, uh, in writing, sometimes the great advice just, it's good advice that comes at exactly the right moment. So I asked him about dialogue. And what he told me uh, is something like this, that people uh, in real life never actually talk to each other. You know, you have a thought cloud that's, you know, monkey mind, and I have mine, and we kind of throw thunderbolts at each other that go past each other. And he said, that makes a beautiful poetic effect in dialogue. So, I mean, on one end, it's the old thing about exposition and dialogue, so it's not, how are you, Jim? I'm fine, except I'm a 50-year-old father of three who's recently divorced and is having an existential <laughs> crisis. How are you, Tim? You know. But he was talking about that, but also something deeper, which is that if I'm, if I'm sitting here thinking about my own inadequacy, oh, why have I never achieved anything? Why am I, it's because of my my mother, uh, yeah, whatever. And you say, um, uh, oh, is that your fork? You know, there, there's, so, so he said you can make a lot of poetry out of that. And the other element of this is that you can just abandon the idea that, that dialogue has to sound like real speech. It's, he said it's supposed to look like poetry. And that even includes the attributions, the he says and the she says. And somehow that really kind of was permission giving that you could just make it look cool on the page and use it to make propulsive energy, and then that was good, yeah. Thank you. Oh, no, I gave away my top secret. <laughs> George, with your students, have you found any best ways to make them become better? Uh, yes, well, I, 
Well, we, it's really unfair because our students are so good that in a sense you could just kind of say, no, what are you doing? Uh, are you writing? <laughs> good, that's good. You should definitely keep it up. Have you read Shakespeare? Shakespeare is, a, you know, they're, they're, so. But, but I, I think, um, for, actually for me, the, the best thing, I do a lot of line editing. That's what I'm best at. With, I, I don't really, I have a very sketchy reading background. I'm, uh, I'm not, I don't feel confident intellectually, but with line editing, I feel pretty good. So what I do a lot is say, um, say very little about you know, the intent of the story or the themes, but just do line edits. So if a, if a student is imitating somebody, uh, I had a student a few years ago who loved, as everyone does, David Foster Wallace, and he did a, a pretty passable imitation of David, but anybody who read him this said, you, you're imitating David Foster Wallace. And he would say, I'm not, though. And you know, to him, it sounded different. So I argued and argued, and he did. So finally, I just did a really close edit for syntax, basically. And he was making a lot of mistakes at places where David would never make a mistake, this kid was making mistakes. So when I hit those places, it, he suddenly sounded different. He sounded better. So for me, it's that close reading that I, that I do the best. You know. Thank, you. Thank you for that question from a disgruntled teacher. I think there's a question up here on microphone number three. Um, so why short stories? And like, what do you think is their power compared to the longer text? And why do you think that they've, to a degree, always played second fiddle to novels? Mm. I, I really started them just because um, I wrote a novel when I was young. Uh, and I'll tell you everything you need to know about that novel in the title, La Boda de Eduardo. <laughs> it, it, it means like Ed's wedding. And, uh, but it was a 700-page novel, and um, my wife and I had just been married, and I went to a wedding in Mexico and came back and said, I got this. Just let me, just let me roll, you know, and then spent a year and a half on it. And it just, and I gave it to my wife, who's here, hey, honey, and, uh, and she read it, and here was, here was her response. <laughs> so, so really, I mean, that was, uh, I, and it took a lot of time, and I just thought, I do not have the skill to do this. And my, my um, as we talked, my, my approach is very control freakish. I, I really want to, to make a story work, I have to freak out over every line and every pulse of the thing. And at that length, I just couldn't, I couldn't control it. So then we also had two small kids, and we were both writing and working and everything. So it seemed to me that if I was going to find a way for my control freakery to make art, I was going to have to control the page length, basically. Uh, so really, I had a great career up until this book, even, you know, and it was all stories. So I think in some ways, it's, you do get paid more for a novel, and I think more people read it. But if your natural stride is short story stride, then I think you just have to, you know, just throw down on that and, and love it as much as you can. It's a beautiful, beautiful form that has so much to do with the joke form. You know, you get to an end of a story, and if it sucks, everybody knows it. You know, there's no, and like if it's a joke, you tell a joke, and people sit there, you lose. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, up on microphone number four. Hi, I was listening to you talk about your iterative revisioning and I was just wondering, would you have been a similar sort of writer when, if you were writing when Ernest Hemingway was writing and you didn't have the benefit of wonderful word processing and computing where you can put your file away and come back and find it a couple of years later or all those little minuscule reiterations that you do all the time. Obviously, we have lots of benefits that he didn't have, would that have changed your, your style? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I've thought about that because this iterative thing, it really takes, I mean, the computer really, really helps. It does. But I, I read too that Tolstoy did uh, 10 passes through War and Peace. You know, and his wife typed every one. That's the other thing over there. So I, th I think, but I do think, I think that you're absolutely right. There's something different about it. And of course, it can also make people. Uh, Insane. You could, you could work on a book for 30 years just moving things around on the computer. But I think, I think there's probably a study to be done on that because it certainly affects. Um, I can't write longhand now at all. I have to be, have the computer. Yeah. I think Mrs. Tolstoy would have done this. Yeah. <laughs> Over here. Um, do you feel as though there are a lot of responsibilities? resting on your shoulders as a writer in the position that you're in on the Colbert Report, on best-selling, um, best-seller lists, and you're so well-known now. Is that starting to feel heavy, or are you able to jettison that when you come to write? Uh, I, so far, I can, I, you know, I think actually the, um, your muscle memory, your artistic muscle memory gets formed, starts getting formed when you're young. So there's, I, uh, once I go into the writing room, I don't really 
worry about. I mean, I know there's only one way forward, which is this iterative approach that I that I have. Um, yeah, so I don't. I, I try not to. I, again, this is self gaming. I, I think if I worried about that, it would be worrisome. But I kind of feel like uh, it took me. It took me until I was about 35 to find my way in writing, and I know, you know, just because of the way the brain works, it's going to quit. There'll be a time when not because I want to be shitty. You know, but because somehow the uh, whatever whatever that magic is has passed away. So I'm trying to I try to keep a real humility. Like you might only have five more good years, so don't let's not fuck it up for silly reasons. You know, like I mean, seriously, like to say, well, um, to worry too much about productivity or that kind of stuff will definitely mess you up. So I try to uh, feel like I'm racing for the exit. I, I, before I'm done, I'd like to get a beautiful scale model of the world that has it just the way it feels to me. And I think to do that, I, I better not worry about anything like that, basically, something like that, you know. How you have become associated with and known for the way in which you talk about empathy and kindness. You gave a commencement speech on it that was shared a bajillion times, I can only imagine, uh, via the internet. And then your publisher put it out in book form, which seemed maybe the horse had already bolted. Um, <laughs> but... In this age, being a person who's known to talk about kind of radical kindness, the need to understand others, the need to listen to one another, the need to be kind to ourselves, you're almost a spokesperson on the topic now. Yeah, that's that? really... Because you cannot rob a bank ever now. It's, you know, I can... <laughs> now, I, I mean, that was, that's a funny thing because I... I uh, our dean asked me to make this graduation speech and I had given a speech to our daughter's class many years before. I thought, oh, I got, I'll just make that speech. I'll, you know, change sixth grade to college, and that'll be it. <laughs> and then um, the day came, or you know, a few days before, and I couldn't find it. So I just basically rewrote it from memory. You know, changed a couple things, and went to, in, at Syracuse. There's this Carrier Dome. It's the big sports stadium, so it's big and it's echoey and it's hot. And uh, I knew the audience was going to be, you know, this wasn't even the main ceremony. This was just a pre-ceremony. And uh, you know, I've been to those things, and you're basically just like, come on, come on, come on, yeah, yeah, yeah. To thine own self be true. Come on, come on, come on. Uh, so I just gave the speech. And, you know, when you're in a, a crowd like this, you can see people. And I, there was like eight kids just broke, I'm fast asleep, you know, hungover crowd. And so I finished it in nothing, nothing, nothing. And, I, and so I even went out into the, they had a reception. And I actually trolled through the crowd, like just fishing for a compliment. <laughs> nothing, you know, nothing. There's one woman who said, did you give the speech? I said, yeah, she goes, <laughs> I just walked away. So that was not, I mean, and really the speech just says, don't you agree that if you look back at your life, you don't really regret mistakes so much or missed career opportunities, but you, you regret the, the handful of times when you could have been nice and you weren't. That's all. And I used, of course, in, I could list thousands of times when I did it, I used the least egregious one I've ever done, which was back in fourth grade or something. Uh, so that was that. And then about three months later, I, the, the way you find out something is viral is people start emailing you to tell you you're going viral. It's like, oh. So that happened. And then you're kind of tagged as the, the kindness guy. So, uh, <laughs> but I do, I, do, I do think that... Uh, well, it's dispositional. I like people. I like to think that um, if you abide with them a while, they'll eventually show you a better side and all that kind of thing. But I... But, but some of them are garbage, right? I don't have to have empathy for yeah. all of them. Right, right, right. Oh, only for, oh. yeah. No, so but so, yeah. Just let you off the hook. You can despise the person next to you. Yeah, oh, yeah. Just, yeah. No, so it's so it just, you know, that, that was just, uh, it's a thing where I, I wrote it so quickly against all my advice about revising, and then it kind of became the biggest thing in my, except I also have had a big hit with a Chipotle bag. I had a, in the States, they, they paid me to put a little bit of writing on a Chipotle bag. And that was the greatest thing I ever I heard from old teachers and old friends. There's the first line of your obituary, right? Yeah. <laughs> One last question over here. Um, there's a pivotal moment for me in the book when um, Lincoln rides away and his horse has um, a ghost in it and it rises into Lincoln and he carries away the experience of the black men. The, that black man and all of the people who were in his part of the graveyard. I mean, that was a lovely moment for me, but did you ever second-guess that in writing? Did, did I what? Did I... Ever second-guess it yeah, in did... writing and editing and yeah. think, should I really end, end that yes. theme that way? Yes, and that was another thing where the, the book, 
and I, I don't really like it when writers say this, but it is kind of true that if you have invested enough subconscious labor in a book, the book really does start writing itself. Or the another analogy is you take, you know, you throw bowling pins into the air and then you catch them. With this book, they, the pins started really coming down in precise ways that weren't my decision. So with that, I mean, I, I kind of knew I wanted somebody to leave with Lincoln, one of the ghosts, and I didn't know who. And I thought, I don't want to decide, I want the structure to tell me. And sure enough, about a week before I finished the book, for complicated, boring reasons, other things, uh, the book arranged itself, and that was the only option that was there. You know? and, then, and it's really wonderful, because when you do that, you, you, you're kind of obeying a sort of inner algebra that the book is telling you. Uh, it was almost like a Rubik's Cube. There was nobody else who could leave with him at that point. And I was happy with everything that came before, so okay, that's, that guy's leaving with him. Then you write it as well as you can, and you go, oh, I just implied X or Y. And then I think at that point, you know, you, to me, the, the real revision thing is something like, I approve this message. You know, I, okay, you know. Uh, I, 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 often when you do events like this, the question is about intentionality. Did you mean to? Uh, I think the, a writer, when she sends her book off, is saying, I approve this message. Even the tonalities that I don't even... I can just barely hear, or that I didn't put in there intentionally, a, a reader, like, uh, or the writer, like the reader, is on fire neurologically when you're reading a book. You know that feeling when you're reading and even a semicolon is talking to you, you know, or a, a subtle pattern of color, you're aware of it? I think th the writer's mind is alive like that, and through many revisions, it, it goes super alive, and at some point you go, you b just bless it. And that's what happened there, you know, yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, George Saunders.